0: Excellent. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here at Grace at the Medina East Campus. Like Tommy uh, just mentioned a moment ago, my name is Tony. I am the campus pastor here at uh, the Medina East Campus. And so, if we have personally never had the opportunity to meet, and I haven't ha- had an opportunity to make your acquaintance, I'd love to do that. So please, if you get a chance to um, in the cafe, stop me on your way out if you have a moment. I'd love to hear your story. Love to hear how you got connected. And uh, so, welcome to Grace. Hey, before we jump into the message for today, I want to just mention a couple of quick things. Um, one of them is that in a couple of weeks, as of course all of us know, we are uh, the Christmas season is now upon us, and so we're looking forward to Christmas Eve services that are going to be coming up here in just a few weeks. And so you probably noticed in your programs uh, that at the Medina East Campus, we're going to be offering six different opportunities uh, to get connected to those Christmas Eve services. And uh, so we, we have found here historically that uh, those Christmas Eve services are a phenomenal time for us kind of as a family to uh, celebrate Christmas, to sing some songs together, to reflect on the meaning of Christmas, and it's really kind of a sweet time, and so, Really, really want to encourage you to make your way out to those. But we also have uh, found that Christmas Eve tends to be one of those times of the year that people that aren't typically connected to church or usually aren't connected to going to a church are willing uh, to come and check one out. And so if you happen to know anybody who is maybe a coworker, friend, family member that either is not connected to a church or is not connected to Jesus, we would really, really want to partner with you and encourage you to invite them out to one of these opportunities connect- to get connected at Christmas Eve services. Uh, at those services, like I said, we're going to do our very, very best uh, to present the hope of Christmas, the message of Jesus, in a very clear and accessible way. And so we just love to partner with you in that. And, uh, and so if you have anyone that you would like to invite out, to encourage you to do that. And also, let me just mention with those service times as well. You'll notice it spans two days, and so there's going to be a couple on Sunday, the 23rd, and there's going to be four of them uh, that are going to be on Monday, the 24th. And I just want to mention that if you're a person who calls Grace Church home, and so if this is your home church, and you are able to, uh, we would ask that if possible, that maybe you could favor uh, the services on Sunday. And the reason for that is we find that uh, oftentimes during Christmas, as is usual, uh, there are many people who will come, and typically, um, the most popular services are the ones that happen on Christmas Eve. And so if it works with your family, I know for some of you, you got things and it doesn't work out that way, that's okay. But if possible, we would encourage you to do that, to open up chairs for guests uh, during the, uh, the 24th. That'd be awesome. One other quick thing I wanna mention about Christmas Eve as well. On Christmas Eve, uh, what we're gonna be doing is we are going to be inviting people to come back for a series that we're gonna be starting the very next week. I wanna let you know about this series because I'm really excited about it. The series that we're gonna do actually is a series that spans all the way from Christmas Eve basically all the way to Easter. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be through that span of time, we're going to be tracking the life of Jesus from his birth all the way to the place of his resurrection. I'm really excited about getting a chance to do this series. Uh, And one of the big reasons is because we have found that most people have an opinion of Jesus, but a lot of times that opinion of Jesus is one that has been inherited. And so we have found that most people get their view of Jesus from their parents, from their grandparents, from their church, from some outside source. And we said that, man, there's something powerful that happens. When you get exposure to the story of Jesus firsthand. And we believe that actually changes people, that changes lives. And and so I just want to encourage you this is going to be an awesome message series. If you know somebody who is investigating Jesus, this is an awesome opportunity to do that together. So it might be a great opportunity uh, to invite them out. So that's coming up in a few weeks. Just want to let you know about that. This week, uh, what we're continuing to do, some of you might know if you've been around, is we're actually continuing in a series uh, that we are calling Unstoppable. Unstoppable. And in this series, if you are just joining us, what you might not know, is that this series is actually part of a broader conversation that we've been having all fall semester long. And so for the past several weeks, we've been having this big conversation that's been based off of this one statement. So once again, here's a statement that we've been unpacking and looking at together. It's this right here. We've been saying that when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God and we join the unstoppable movement of God. Okay, so this is the statement that we've been spending a lot of time looking at. And the reason why we've been spending so many weeks kind of digesting this together is because we said that this statement, as simple as it might sound, we said that this really reflects a very, very important pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. And so when you go through the pages of Scripture and you read through the story of the Bible, you're going to find that this pattern emerges. When the people of God make themselves uncomfortable, they deliberately and willingly step out of their comfort zone for the things that matter to God it unleashes God's power in them and through them, and they get to take part in this movement that God is accomplishing on earth. And so we said, this is a pattern we see in scripture. We said, more importantly, this is an invitation. We believe this is an invitation to every single person in this room to pattern our lives after, that when we purposefully and willingly step outside of our comfort zones for the things that matter to God, when we make ourselves uncomfortable for the things that matter to God, it actually has this incredible effect It unleashes God's power in and through us, and we get to take part in this unstoppable movement. Now, uh, like I said, for the past several weeks, we've actually been kind of looking at this and thinking about this uh, statement together. I would encourage you, if you've missed any of the previous weeks and you'd like to catch up on that, you can go to our podcast, our app, our website. All of those platforms are for free, and you can catch up on that. But What we're doing in the Unstoppable series is we're really focusing on this last part of the statement. And we're basically asking, practically speaking, what does it mean to be part of God's unstoppable movement? What is God's unstoppable movement and how do we take part in that? How do we become part of that? So that's what we're really kind of honing in and talking about. So last week, Clark started this, this whole talk about unstoppable and he talked about the unstoppable church. And we said one of the ways that God is generating an unstoppable movement is that he has commissioned and he has launched his church. We said as unlikely as it might seem, as strange as that might sound, God's plan for the hope of the world comes through the church. So we talked about that last week. So this week we're going to continue, and I want to talk about, here's the title for today's conversation. I'm going to continue and build off of what Clark said last week. I want to talk about this idea of the unstoppable message, okay, the unstoppable message. And here's what we're going to say today. What we're going to say is the reason that the people of God can take part in an unstoppable movement of God is because they are committed to an unstoppable message. We, those of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, we believe that we have been entrusted with and we believe that we have been transformed by, for those of us who follow Christ, an unstoppable message that the church has been entrusted with and we've been given an unstoppable message. Now, of course, the question is, what is that message? Now, if you've been around grace for any length of time, probably comes to no surprise to you that what we're gonna say is we're gonna say that message is the gospel. It's the message of the gospel. That is the unstoppable message that those who follow Jesus have entrusted themselves to and they are committed to. It is the message of the gospel. And those of us who follow Christ, we believe, or at least I should say we should believe because it's what the Bible teaches, that this message right here, is unstoppable. That this message right here is the power of God to transform lives, the gospel. Now, just to make sure we are all on the same page, because I don't want to for a second assume that everyone in this room knows exactly what this is, what this message is. I know that not everyone here has grown up in the church. I know that not everyone here maybe is a follower of Jesus. Some of you are investigating that. So let me just be real clear and let me just define for us before we even start this conversation what the gospel is. Okay, so here's a clear definition. I could say it a lot of different ways, right? There's a lot of ways. The message of the gospel is actually fairly simple, but here's a good way to think of it. So the message of the gospel is first and foremost this that we are all sinners, all right? So this is the gospel, we are all sinners. And the Bible's gonna say what sin means is that all of us have in one way or another, we have turned away from God's desires for us. And so because of that, the Bible is gonna say that is true of every single person, that that is the problem with the world. So I think, my guess is whether you follow Jesus or not, one thing that everyone agrees on is that there is something wrong with the world. There is something wrong with humanity. I mean, you see it in the news, You see it you know. even when you look in your own family room. There's something wrong with humanity. What the Bible would say is the human problem is sin. And that problem is in you and that problem is in me and there's no one exempt. All of us have sinned. And here's what the Bible's gonna say. The Bible's gonna say because we have sinned, that means that a relationship with God that we were intended to have, a a harmonious relationship with God has been disjointed. And so we now live estranged from the God that we were intended to have a relationship with. And the Bible's gonna say that because of our sin, We now live uh, underneath the threat of eternal separation from God and hell. And so this is what the gospel tells us. The gospel says our problem is our sin. And the Bible's also gonna say this. The gospel's gonna tell us there is nothing that we can do to solve this problem. There is nothing that you and I, in and of ourselves, can do to to, to alleviate or eliminate sin in our lives. So there's no amount of human striving. There's no amount of human effort. There is no amount of religious adherence. There is no amount of altruistic behavior that we can do to somehow get ourselves back in a right relationship with God. So the Bible's going to say, there is no um, humanistic system. There is no anthropological institution, neither politics, nor philosophy, nor education is going to eliminate and alleviate sin. We can do nothing to save ourselves. All right, this is the gospel. We're all sinners. We can't save ourselves. The Bible's gonna go on to say the gospel is also this. The gospel is the story that God recognized we could do nothing to save ourselves. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, right? That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus went on to live a perfect life that we could not live. And so he lived a sinless life. And then the Bible says he went to the cross. On the criminal's cross, he was crucified in our place. Jesus died in our place for our sins on the cross. The Bible says three days later, this Jesus rose from the dead, physically, bodily, historically, literally, not a metaphor, for real, rose from the dead. And those who put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ will experience the forgiveness of sins, and they'll be reconciled into a right relationship with God and have the hope of the resurrection and be able to live with him within eternity. Right, now, that message, that, that's, that's almost as clear as I know how to say it. Right, it's a simple message. It's the message of our sin Of God's grace through the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope of new life and a restored relationship with God because of the forgiveness of sins. That's as simple as that might sound, right? That is the gospel. That is the message that we believe, those of us who follow Jesus, we believe is unstoppable. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, for those of us who follow Christ, we believe not only is this message unstoppable, we believe that this message is what transforms lives, We believe that this message, as simple as it sounds, has the power to transform marriages, to transform addictions, to utterly transform. It is the solution to the problem that you didn't even know you had. That's what we believe. In fact, let me show you what what the Bible says about this message, about the gospel. Romans 1, the apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. See what Paul says? He says, this message, as simple as it is, this is God's solution to the human problem, and it has the, it's God's power to bring salvation to everyone who believes in it. That's what Paul says. Uh, in Colossians, it says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you have heard it and truly understood God's grace. Those of us who follow Jesus believe it's an unstoppable message that it's continuing to spread and there's nothing that's gonna stop. In fact, those of us who follow Jesus, we would look at the fact that 2,000 years after the events of Jesus's life, that we are on the other side of the world in Medina, Ohio at an 11 o'clock service and we are still talking about this, is proof that it is an unstoppable message. And so this is what Christians believe. Christians believe it's an unstoppable message, the power of God to transform us and to transform the world. Now let me just ask you a question. For those in this room who follow Jesus, and again, I know not everybody does, how many of you, when I say the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, how many of you, when I say the gospel is unstoppable, how many of you would say, I agree, I believe that? Yes. Okay. Good. That's a good amount of us who raise our hands. Now, here is the problem. So here's, here's why I say all of that. The reason I say that is because how strange is it? The strange thing happens that even though so many of us would raise our hands, and I would raise my hand and say that, yes, we believe this is an unstoppable message. This is God's power for transformation in my life, and it's God's plan to transform the whole world, many of us would say that. Yet, for some reason, when we walk out of this room, and when we go into our family room settings, and when we go into our workplaces, and, and when, we, when we step into our universities, you know, wherever you might go to school or when we, when we walk onto the job site, why is it that when we're in those places and we find that there's an opportunity to share this message? When someone asks us a question about why we live the way that we do or why we believe the things that we believe. Why is it that when we're in those places, like when we're with our family and there's actually an opportunity to be able to speak this message that we believe is the power of God to save people and to change them, why is it that when we're in those settings, there is a resistance, sometimes even an embarrassment? Maybe even say it this way, why is it that sometimes we feel ashamed? Ashamed to bring it up. Why is it that when we're in those settings, even though we believe it's the power of God that's changed us and can change the world, it's the hope of the gospel, why is it that in those settings we, we feel a temptation to jettison certain aspects of that story? I don't want to say that part. But why is that? Why is that? And listen, here, here's what I want to talk about. That's actually what I want to talk about today. Because I believe that there is an important uh, there's something important about this message. It's an unstoppable message, but there is something important about it that we must understand. There's something about the nature of the gospel that we must understand. And if we don't understand this, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, that we are gonna be susceptible to becoming embarrassed and even ashamed to speak this message. I think it's interesting, I don't know if you notice this, look what Paul says. I think this is such a fascinating thing to say. Paul says about the gospel, I am not ashamed, Of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone now just think about that for a minute how weird is it that Paul feels the need to say that why would he have to say I don't feel ashamed the 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 mere fact that he says that necessarily insinuates that the message of the gospel carries with it something that can cause embarrassment something that can cause shame Right? He actually tells uh, Timothy, Paul, uh, who Timothy was Paul's protege. He actually writes to him in Second Timothy chapter one. He says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why would he have to tell Timothy that, unless there was a proclivity to be embarrassed and ashamed? And so, if you've ever felt, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've ever felt that way, I want to let you know you're in good company, because Timothy felt that way. Paul apparently felt that way at different points. I'll tell you, I have felt that way. It is much, It is, let's be honest, it is much easier for me to stand up here and proclaim the gospel to you than it is for me to go out there into my world and do the same thing. Why is that? If we really believe this, why is that? And I think, like I said, part of it comes that we have to understand the nature of this unstoppable message. And so let me show you what I'm talking about. I think hopefully this will will shed some clarity on this. So take your Bibles if you got them, and uh, we're going to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because that's what we're going to be flipping today in our Bibles is 1 Corinthians 1. And we'll be spending the rest of our time here in this passage. And so kind of one stop here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you here this morning, by the way, it's not a problem at all. Feel free to grab one of those black Bibles that are in the chairs underneath you, and you're going to find 1 Corinthians 1 on page 793 in those Bibles. And then let me just also say, too, if you don't own a Bible, man, we just love if you took one of our copies and just had that, made that a gift from us to you. Merry Christmas. You can have a Bible. And uh, would you get me? It's good. Nice. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 1. Go ahead and get there. All right. Now, as you're flipping there, just a small amount of background, very, very small amount of background. Um, the book of 1 Corinthians was, is actually a letter written to a church in a place called Corinth. Uh, this was a first century church that was planted by a guy named Paul. So Paul is an apostle, which meant that he was a very, very influential, powerful early church leader. And Paul is actually the one who's writing this letter. So Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. And as he's writing to them, he's writing to them about the nature of the message. And what he says, I think, is so profound. Check this out. So we're gonna start off in verse 17. Paul says, "'For Christ did not send me to baptize, "'but to,' notice this, "'to preach the gospel.'" sent me to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here's what Paul says, he says my job as a follower of Jesus and by the way if you're a follower of Jesus this would be true of all of us as well, our job is that we have been entrusted with an unstoppable message. And that unstoppable message is the gospel. It's what I just explained to us, that's the message. Now watch what he goes on to say next because I think what he says in verse 18 is so straightforward and it's so honest. And it's so interesting. Look what he says. For the message of the cross, that's the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now now this, again, I think this is so fascinating. What the Apostle Paul says here is so straightforward. It's so unapologetic. But here's what Paul says. He says one of the reasons that that those who follow Jesus might find themselves in a position where they become reluctant, reluctant or embarrassed or ashamed to share this message is because there's a certain characteristic about this message and even though it's unstoppable to those, he says to those who are perishing, that is to those who have not yet embraced it, he says it's 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 foolish. This message is foolish. It sounds ludicrous to those who have not yet embraced the cross. It's actually kind of interesting. The word foolish that's used here, you know what it is in the original Greek language? It is the word where we get our English word moron from. So what's he saying? He's saying this message, he says, you gotta understand this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you gotta understand, this is an unstoppable message, but to those who don't follow Jesus and to those who have not yet embraced the message of the gospel, it sounds moronic, idiotic, dumb, stupid. That's what he's saying. And Paul is not apologizing about that. He is straightforward, just saying this is the way it is. One of the qualities of this message is that those who don't follow Jesus, they're going to think it sounds dumb. And one of the reasons I think for those of us who follow Jesus that we can find ourselves sometimes ashamed or embarrassed is because we know that this is true. We recognize this. Paul actually elaborates. Look what he says next. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Now, by the way, he's referring to they the most influential, you know, kind of group or breed of people here. He says, has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, again, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So here he goes again. He says, God, God is using a message that he understands full well is going to sound foolish to people who don't necessarily follow him. It's a foolish message. Now, just to be clear here, I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying that to become a Christian, that means that you become anti-intellectual. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, if any of you have ever studied the life of the Apostle Paul, you know that guy was an intellectual heavyweight, right? So that's not what he's saying. But I think what Paul is pointing out here is he's pointing out, just like I said, the very honest reality That this message to a world that doesn't know Jesus is going to just sound dumb to them. He actually goes on and he elaborates why that's the case. Here's what he says. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both to Jews and to the Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So so here's what Paul does here, by the way, just a little bit of historical context. Paul takes his world, and he breaks it into two categories. He says there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. This would have been a very common way for people to think back then. And what Paul says is whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, the message of the cross is gonna seem foolish. The message of the gospel is going to offend or seem foolish to both audiences. Notice what he says about the Jews. He says to the Jews, the gospel is a stumbling block to them. It's a stumbling block. Now, that's sort of interesting, right? Stumbling block. You're like, what does that even mean? Well, some of your translations phrase it this way it says that the gospel is offensive to the Jews. The word stumbling block or offense is literally in the Greek language where we get our English word scandal from. They say it's scandalous to them, it's offensive to them. Why were the Jewish people offended by the gospel? Why were they offended? Well, here's why because Jews demand signs. Now, what he's referring to here is that the Jewish people, in the Jewish mind, the Jews would have read the Old Testament, which promised that there was a Messiah that was going to come. And they believed, from what they read in the Old Testament, that when God brought his Messiah into the world, that the Messiah would come with cataclysmic power, so they were expecting that a Messiah was going to come into the world, he was going to overthrow the government, he was going to sit on a throne, he was going to be mighty in strength and power and riches, that he was going to thwart all of his enemies, and his enemies were all going to bow down at his feet, and he was just going to destroy everyone and sit on his throne. That's what they were expecting was going to happen. Now, all of us in this room know, when Jesus came into the world, did any of that happen? Well, not like that. Right? When Jesus came into the world, this is Christmas, how did Jesus enter? Did he enter into a palace? No, he entered into a borrowed manger. And then he grew up in relative obscurity in a blue-collar family. And then he lived his life in poverty. And then he was crucified on a criminal's cross. And to the Jewish person who was expecting that God's Messiah would come and would sit on a throne, the fact that Jesus went to the cross to them, that was offensive that was, that was offensive. That was offensive. That was an oxymoron. A, a, a Messiah who died on a cross, that was an oxymoron to them. They'd be like saying peaceful terrorist. They'd be like saying decaffeinated coffee, right? It just didn't work. It didn't work. And so the Jews, the Bible says, they're offended. They were offended by the message. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, or the Gentiles, the Bible says it's foolishness to the Gentiles. The message is foolishness to them. Why was it foolishness? Well, because the Greeks love wisdom, is what he says, Now, this is a little bit interesting. Some of you might actually know this. In the first century, the Greeks were the people who loved philosophy. They were the people who loved wisdom. In fact, the Greeks were people who subscribed to something called sophistry. And sophistry was essentially the love of philosophy and the love of wisdom. And this culture, what they would do is they would actually have these these very well-trained, eloquent speakers who would wax eloquent, who were trained in rhetoric and had these incredible oratory abilities. And they would basically go, they were called sophists. And they would basically travel around and they would present these different philosophies. And they were always these complicated, profound, intricate, complex philosophies with very, you know, fancy words and esoteric concepts. And the Greeks loved it the more complicated the idea, the more mental labyrinths you had to go through to understand it. Like to them, they were like, we love that stuff. And so the Bible says when the gospel was preached, they thought it was foolish. Now, why did they think it was foolishness? Well, here's why. Many of us know this. The message of the gospel is foolishly simple. Is it? I mean, just, we all know this. The message I just presented to you, we are all sinners. Christ died for us. He rose from the dead, and now we have hope of eternal life if you put your faith in him. That message is so simple, a four-year-old can understand it. In fact, four-year-olds often do understand it. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying it's a childish message. Now, the message of the gospel has satisfied some of, the most, some of the brightest and most brilliant minds in human history. But what I'm saying is you don't, you don't have to be a philosopher to accept. The gospel is accessible to anybody, to anybody. Whether you're a child or whether you're a fully educated person, all the, the whole gamut—the gospel is accessible. And to the Greeks, oh, that—that was—that was insulting. That would insult their intelligence. Something that simplistic. Not only that, the idea that Jesus was a god and he died on a cross—that was absurd to these people. It was absurd. It seemed so dumb to them. In fact, I thought this was interesting. I was reading one commentator, and they actually discovered, archaeologists actually discovered first-century graffiti. I this is kind of interesting. You guys want to see some first century graffiti? So check this out. This is in Rome, and this is actually on a wall. Um, it's etched into a wall, and it's kind of hard to see it. This is actually a picture of the wall. So this is in Rome. So this is actually the image that's been, um, that's been traced so you can actually see it a little bit more clearly. But what it says um, is it says right here, Alexa Manos worships his God. That's what it says. And so archaeologists have discovered this, and they said, this is, this is graffiti. This is first century graffiti. And what's interesting is, I don't know if you can see it, it's Alex Aminos worships his God. So apparently this is Alex Aminos, I guess. And he's worshiping, he's kind of bowing down to, this image of a person on a cross. So you see there's a guy on a cross, and do you notice his head? It's the head of a, of a donkey. Right? It's the head of a jackass. And what archaeologists believe is that this, is a great demonstration of the view that the Greeks and the Romans would have had of Christians. Basically, it's an insult, like look how dumb, look how stupid these Christians are. They actually believe in a God who went to, to, the, to the Romans, the cross was utterly offensive. Romans weren't even allowed to be crucified on a cross. The cross was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. And the idea that a God was crucified on a cross was something that was so absurd to them. It was so foolish that they would make fun of it. Now, listen, I could go on and on and on, and, and I know I'm giving you a lot of history here. But I say all of that to tell you this, that even though back in Paul's day, the gospel was offensive and it seemed foolish, not much has changed today. Now, now it doesn't offend and it's not as foolish in the same ways, but let's be honest, the message of the gospel, one of the characteristics is it continues to offend and it continues to seem foolish to a world that doesn't know Jesus. And Paul says, you got to understand this about this message. Isn't it true? I mean, just think about it for a minute. In our culture today, to tell someone that message, the message that we are lost in our sin and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he is the only solution for us to be in a, in a relationship with God, that message <laughs> continues to offend. It offends us. In, in, a, in a morally relativistic, uh, rel, rel, in moral relativity, in a society that, that elevates, right, moral relativity, in, in, a, in a society that elevates plurality, this, this thought process that there's only one way to connect with God, Man, I know even if you're a person in this room that's investigating Jesus and you hear me say this message to you, you might think to yourself, you might be saying to yourself, man, that sounds so narrow-minded, that sounds so bigoted, that sounds so arrogant. And it continues to offend. The apostle Paul says, yes, you gotta understand this about the gospel. It is going to be offensive and it's going to seem foolish. The message of the gospel is the message that you cannot save yourself. And man, I'll tell you, that offends human ego especially in our country, in America, right? We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and if I got a problem, I, don't you tell me I can't fix what's wrong with me. Well, Christianity comes in and says, absolutely, you cannot. You absolutely need a savior. You have to have Jesus. That offends human pride. It offends human ego. Not only that, the message continues to seem foolish. Many of you feel this. Some, some of you work in, in, um, in different spheres where it requires a very intellectual group of people. Some of you are in those settings right now. And my guess is when you declare to that group that you're a Christian, they scoff at you because it seems so foolish. Oh, come on, how silly could that be? I mean, that's, that's sure, that's kids stuff. Right? But once you get older, you realize you need more sophisticated and complicated ways of thinking. And all I'm saying is this, is the message continues to do. Di- One of the qualities of the message of the gospel, it is unstoppable, but it is going to seem foolish and it is going to seem offensive. One of the reasons that those of us who follow Jesus will find ourselves ashamed, even embarrassed to share it, is because maybe we don't necessarily understand that. That's true about this message. It's something that's true. Now, to make matters worse, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but to make matters worse, the Bible's actually going to go on to say, not only is this message going to seem foolish and going to be offensive to certain people, but it's actually going to go on to say that it's now also entrusted to a group of foolish messengers. So I want, I want you to notice what Paul says next. What he says next, I find this comical because what he's going to say to this church is one of those statements where you're like, is that, is that a compliment or is that an insult? Did you guys ever have that happen before where someone says something to you and you're like, are you compli- complimenting me or insult? I'm not sure which one it is. That actually happens to me a fair amount. And uh, so uh, just, a few, just a few months ago, I was, uh, it happened to me. I was out in the cafe. I, we had got done doing services here, and I was out in the cafe. And uh, there was a, a person that I had known for a very long time who actually goes to one of our other campuses. So I, I actually started at Grace Church at a different campus. And so I had known them from those days and, um, and so we had started this campus and they were just visiting. And so I saw them and I said, oh, I said, hey, it's so great to see you. And they said, ah, oh, it's great to see you and, and uh, hugged them and kind of caught up on life for a little bit. And then they said to me at one point, they said, man, this is really cool to see this church and it's amazing to see what God is doing. I said, it is really cool. I said, it's really fun to be part of it. And they said, man, I gotta tell you, they said, um, just listening to you talk, they said, you have really improved as a communicator. And I was like, thanks, I think. I don't. And I, you know, I was just like, I was trying to just move on. I was like, all right, let's just talk about something else. But they wouldn't let it go. And so they were like, they're like, no, seriously. They said, I remember when you first started preaching over at one of our other campuses, you know, you were in your 20s or whatever. And they said, you were terrible. And I was like, it's like, fine, I get it. You know, I so I tried to change the subject. I was like, so how are your kids doing? And they were like, and they wouldn't let it go. And they were like, seriously, we used, to, we used to see that you were preaching and we used to roll our eyes. We were like, no, not him. And I was like, you know what? I get it. I get it. I said, fine. That's, I said, you know, that was a long time ago. That was a very long time ago. I said, in fact, that was so long. You have aged so much since then. It's out of control how old you look. I didn't actually say it. I wanted to say that. In fact, I hope you're in the room right now. <laughs> Serves you right, right? But look, look what Paul says. This is, this is one of those, those situations. Paul says, brothers and sisters to the church in Corinth, think of what you were when you were called. This is great. He says, guys, just think about what you were. Think about what you were when you accepted the gospel. Not many of you were wise by human standards. He's like, you guys, you guys weren't the intellectual heavyweights. You guys weren't the brightest group in the world. Think about what you were. He says, not many of you were influential. You weren't the movers and shakers. Not a lot of you. A bunch, bunch of you weren't that. He says, not, not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, not many of you had the pedigree. You weren't royalty. Not, not a bunch of you. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. To which I'm guessing the Corinthian church was probably like, Thanks, I think. I don't know if Paul had the spiritual gift of encouragement, but he says, man, the foolish things, the weak things of the world. Now he goes on, look at this. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. And here's the most amazing thing. The Bible says about the message, the message of the gospel is unstoppable, but we have to understand that this is a message that is going to offend It is a message that is going to seem foolish to those that don't understand it. And to top it off, God is going to place it into the hands of extraordinarily ordinary people. That God is going to decide. I don't know about you. Maybe this is me. I don't know about you. But if I was God and I had this message that I knew was going to offend and I knew was going to be foolish to people, I would think that, you know what, that means because this message is so difficult, I need to make sure I get the top dogs on this thing. I gotta make sure I get the best salespeople, I gotta get the brightest lights, I gotta get the top mathematicians, the top scientists, the best orators. I gotta get the best of the best on this thing because we gotta market this thing. That's what I would think. That's not what God does. God says, no, you know who I'm gonna pick? Ordinary, humble. I'm gonna use the foolish things of this world So that I can demonstrate my wisdom and I can demonstrate my power. I don't know if you guys ever noticed, this is God's MO. He is always doing this. God is always taking humble things, lowly things, and he is using them to display his unbelievable power. You ever notice God's always doing this? That's Christmas, isn't it? The Christmas story is a story that is shrouded in humility. Jesus born in a borrowed manger, not in a, callous, in a castle or a palace. Jesus' birth announcement is given not to the nobles and to the philosophers, it's given to the shepherds. He dies on a cross. He's, he bows down and, and he, he washes his disciples' feet. It's the power of God displayed through humility. Think about this. When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, the 12 disciples in which this entire movement was going to eventually hinge on, who did he pick? Did he pick the philosophers and the PhDs and the nobles? No, 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 no. He picked very ordinary people. In fact, you know what the book of Acts says about the disciples? They were unschooled, ordinary men, and yet he chose them. This is God's MO, and he continues to do this. God displays his power through the church. Do you guys ever stop and think this? I stop and think this all the time, because I believe the church is God's unstoppable plan, and I believe the message of the gospel is unstoppable. But there are times that sometimes I think to myself, God, is this really how you want to do it? This is your plan. This is your plan. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? You guys are by far above average in attraction. You guys are a very good looking group of people. But most of us are strikingly ordinary people. Let's just be honest. I mean, some of you are influential, and you're, you know, you're movers and shakers, and you're like the top, but let's be honest. Most of us, we're just a bunch of broken people, a bunch of really ordinary people that God has utterly transformed by the power of the gospel, and it pleases God for some reason to do it this way. This is how the message works. It's a foolish message that is given to a group of foolish messengers And all week long, this has been forcing me to ask this question. And maybe you find yourself asking this question too. And here's what I've been asking. Why did God decide to do it this way? He wanted to to unleash his unstoppable movement. Why this way? Because he could have done it any way he wanted to, right? If he wanted to do it, he could have just, you know, he could have just sent down one giant angel and the angel could have proclaimed the message and we all could fall on our knees and just worship and that would be the end of it. He chose to do it this way. Why? And you know what I came to? Here's what I've come to. I don't really know Why? And I think that there's probably more complexity behind that than I can even fathom to begin understanding, because God is beyond me. But I can tell you, I think the text gives us some indication why God decided to do it this way. Here's one of the reasons. The first reason I think that God decided to do it this way is because he wanted to. How's that for an answer? He just wanted to. Look what it says. First Corinthians 1. For since the wisdom of God, or for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased the foolishness of what he was preached to save us. God's like, here, here's the reason. God likes it that way. It pleases him. He's like, oh, I'm gonna do it this way. I like it that way. Why does it please him? Well, I think the past, this passage actually goes on to give us some indication. Check this out. Uh, in, uh, in chapter two, verse four, Paul says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I think one of the reasons God decides to do it this way is because his power is more perfectly displayed in weakness. God purposefully uses foolish things so that he could display his strength and his wisdom. And I think because of that, what that means is no one can boast. That's what he says. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. That's why I think God chooses to use the foolish things and a foolish message is because he wants his power to be displayed more perfectly. I was thinking about this this past week and I was... Um, I don't know if this is helpful, but this is the illustration I came up with. It's kind of a foolish, a foolish illustration, but that makes sense in light of the message. And, uh, and so I want you to imagine with me for a second that you had uh, two uh, very, very, very powerful uh, baseball players. Okay? In fact, they were the best hitters, disputedly the best hitters in the history of the game. And so there's this big argument over who was the greatest and, you know, who's the goat, who's the greatest of all time. And everyone's like, it's this guy. And everyone's like, no, it's this guy. And they're, you know, disputing and they're saying these are the two best hitters in the game. And so finally it all comes to a head and they decide they're going to do a, They're going to, you know, they're going to put together a competition we're gonna find out once and for all definitively who is the best hitter in the game. And so they get the press around it and they get all these people to come to it. And basically they have this competition. And the competition is each one of them is gonna get 20 pitches. All, you know, different variety of pitches. And whoever hits the most grand slams is the definitive winner, is the GOAT, is the greatest of all time. So I want you to imagine the first guy gets up, right? And everyone's cheering for him, everyone's excited. He gets up, he picks his bat. Some of you are like, you keep that behind the TV. Yes, I do. Don't ever storm the stage, right? And um, let's say he gets up, and uh, he gets up, and he's got his bat, right? And so everyone is, everyone is cheering, and they're all excited, and they're anticipating it's going to be good. And he goes on 20 pitches, and I mean all variety—fastballs, curveballs, whole thing—and 20 for 20. This guy slams him out of the park. I mean, 20 of 20, grand slam. Everyone's cheering. Everyone's excited. They're like, my gosh, he is the best. He's got to be the champion. Next guy gets up. Second guy gets up. And everyone's quiet. They want to see what he's going to do, right? But he seems calm, cool, collected. He doesn't seem like he's nervous at all. And this guy goes on. People are excited to see what he's going to do, but there's no way he's going to be 20 for 20, right? And he goes to get his bat. And as he goes to get his bat, he reaches in, and instead of grabbing his bat, he grabs one of these guys right here, a pool noodle, right a finoodle, that's what we call him so he grabs one of these things and everyone's like no he's joking around there's no way like obviously he's just kidding but he's not and he walks up to the plate and after everyone realizes he's not joking around they all start making fun of him what a moron look at that stupid thing look at this look at this dumb thing right And he gets up there, but he's serious, so I'll get out. And he steps up to the plate, and then somehow, miraculously, 20 pitches, the guy takes the finoodle, the the pool noodle, and he hits all 20 of them out of the park. this is the dumbest analogy ever. (laughs) But I just want you, if that happened, it could never happen, but if that happened, can you imagine, who would be the undisputed champion of that game? Tell me, who would it be? The guy that used the foolish thing to display his strength and power. That would be the one, right? And I think if you can get your mind around that, I think that's exactly what he's saying here. Why is it that God deliberately uses the foolish thing, the thing that he knows is gonna offend, the thing he knows is gonna frustrate, the thing that he knows is going to seem foolish to people? Why would he entrust it to a group of people who honestly are just, there's, there's nothing great about these, why would he do that? So his power is fully displayed in us. See, for some of us who follow Jesus, we, we look and we say to ourselves, man, God God could never use me. God, you know, I, I'm just, I'm not good enough, I'm not eloquent enough. And you see, I think what the Bible is saying is God uses for noodles, like you and me. <laughs> and he wants to, and it pleases him to do so. And so when we begin to understand this, it, it listen, it eliminates pride. None of us can say, God's so lucky to have me on his team. God doesn't need us but it also eliminates insecurity. When I look at myself and I say, man, God, you can, I don't have the right skills. I don't have the right ability. God says, I can display my power through your weakness. Some of you in this room right now, you're looking at your life, and it's full of weakness, a broken story, brokenness in your life right now. Man, God can use that, he wants to use that. He has, and he will, and he will continue to use that. So I think what it does is, man, it eliminates pride, eliminates insecurity. You know what else I believe? I believe it gives confidence to those of us who follow Jesus in the message. It should give us confidence. It should give us confidence that we should, not like the apostle Paul, we shouldn't be ashamed. Why? Because it's the power of God. And God will use it to transform and change lives. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 18th century some of you may have heard of him, and he, he said this. I thought this was really powerful about the gospel. Now, mind you, the language is a little antiquated, but I think we can make sense of it. Here's what he says. He says, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it's a very proper and, and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that uh, when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Okay, so let me just explain that a little bit. What he's saying is, he's saying, I've noticed there's been a lot of people defending the gospel. He says, and that's good. That's the right thing to do. He says, but I've also noticed that when that happens, it's usually because the gospel isn't being preached. <laughs> Look what he says next, I love this. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. And there he is in the cage. And here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I love this, check this out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. He says, man, let the lion out of the cage. You don't need to feel the need to defend him. He'll defend himself. Let the lion out of the cage. Let the gospel out. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare approaching. You see, I think those of us who follow Jesus, we should find ourselves in this situation. I don't need to feel ashamed. I don't need to feel that I need to, to somehow change or edit the message of the gospel. I can just let the lion out of the cage because it is the power of God with gentleness and respect and love, but with boldness and honesty. It's the message that we have. I'm the band to come up, and as they do, I want to I kind of end with just one final thought too, and that is specifically for those in this room who are investigating Jesus. Listen, if you're a person in this room who's investigating Christ, I just, I just wanna be really clear on this. This is the message. This is the message that we believe is the, sal- is the hope of salvation. It might sound simple, it might sound foolish, it might sound offensive, but we believe it's the wisdom of God. And maybe even right now as we're talking, if you were being real honest, you would say that, man, God is doing something in your heart. And maybe the power of God is at work in you right now, not, not because of what some person said, but because of this message. And maybe you've never embraced it before. And maybe you've never heard it that clearly, but that is the message. And some of you are like, yeah, but it sounds sounds so foolish. Yes, it does. Those who are perishing, absolutely. You're like, yeah, but it seems so offensive. It's not what our culture believes. Right, yes, that's true. The Bible doesn't deny that. But it is the power of God. And it is for you. And I believe with all of my heart, it can transform your life. And I hope that you wouldn't um, push away from the message if you feel that God is working in your heart, but that you would grab onto it, that you would call on the name of Jesus even here and now because it's a message for you. It's a message for you. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you for this message and uh, the message of the gospel. It's, It's powerful. And for those of us who follow you, we believe that. We believe it's the power of God for salvation, that it's an unstoppable message. And so I pray that we would take on the posture of the Apostle Paul, that we, like him, would say, we're not ashamed of it. We're not ashamed because it's your power. God, we recognize it it is going to offend, and it is going to sound foolish, and we don't wanna unnecessarily offend anybody. And we don't wanna come across as, you know, arrogant or belligerent, but Father, at the same time, we want to be honest and we want, to, we want your power to be unleashed. And so I pray that you would embolden us, Father, to, to just um, to trust your message, to let the lion out of the cage, that when we find ourselves in settings with people, family members, coworkers, and there's an opportunity that arises, that we wouldn't be reluctant to share the truth about who you are. God, I pray for the person that doesn't yet know you, that maybe is investigating you. And I pray that maybe even today that the light bulb would go on and the gospel would be real to them. That maybe, maybe even today they would embrace it for the first time to find you to be true, to find you to be powerful. So God, I pray you'd bless us for having heard what we heard today. I pray that we'd live differently as a result of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.